The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. asking you today that we would turn from our look at Second Peter that we've been studying. If you were with us and understand where we are in Second Peter, it's a, a very difficult chapter to match up with communion. So I'm taking a step aside from Second Peter for today, looking at a very familiar passage to you, most of you. In John chapter 15, words from Christ to his 11 remaining disciples the night before the cross. You know these words. Sometimes they fall into the category of things we know so well we don't even think about. So I'm asking you maybe to concentrate on what Jesus was really saying here in this instruction to his disciples of John 15. I'll read 1 through 8. Jesus is the spokesman. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of God. I probably used to think or maybe one time in my life thought that John 15, 5 makes a statement that sounds like an exaggeration. Without me, you can do nothing. Well, I think to myself and my human brain, what there is of it. We can do a lot of useful things in this world that don't involve Christ or that don't necessarily depend upon Christ. You could become the high school class valedictorian. You could climb a mountain. You could make a fortune in business. You could write a best-selling book. You could help create some kind of pharmaceutical cure for cancer. Yes, indeed, you could even pastor a church without the aid of Christ. I see it happen. Could it be the Lord is saying something beyond the mere activities and deeds that we put on our resumes and call our accomplishments? Might it be that he is 
saying, you can do nothing that lasts without me. You can do nothing that counts for eternity without me. This wonderful passage that many of us know well was spoken exclusively to disciples. It's not an address to the world at large. It's to the 11 disciples the night before the cross. And it's words spoken today to disciples. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, having turned to him and called him your Lord, then it's not spoken to you. But I know that it is spoken to many, many here today. First, in the shorter time I have on a communion Sunday, I would ask you to just see the definition of the statement here that Jesus defined himself as God's vine and believers as living branches from him or of him. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. I am the vine. You are the branches. If anyone abides or remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the core statement. We know that these disciples, having moved about Jerusalem and its environment, had often passed the great temple of Jerusalem. And we know that in that day, the temple had above its door a a sculpting of masonry, probably, that was on the very visible on the front of the temple. It was a sculpture of a huge vine bearing fruit. Some of it was gilded in gold. Part of the wonders that people looked at when they saw the Jerusalem temple and said, what a wonderful building. And these disciples knew what that vine was there for. They knew that in passages of the Old Testament, like Isaiah 5, the Lord had spoken of Israel as his vineyard, his carefully planted and tended uh, fruit-bearing vine that he hoped they would, as a nation, become for him. But we also know, and the disciples knew, what had happened to Israel as God's vineyard. Instead of being fruitful and bearing grapes, by and large, they came to the time of the prophets, like Hosea chapter 10, when Hosea said, Israel is an empty vine and brings forth fruit only unto themselves. So that grapevine was really a symbol that stood for God's great hope, which was not fulfilled in the nation of Israel as a nation. But we see Jesus here seeming to translate that symbol into what he expected from Christian disciples and saying, Christians are now God's blooming grapevine on which he looks for fruit to grow. And we know, of course, that the connection of a a branch of a vine and the main stem of the vine is an organic connection. It's not a mechanical thing. It's something that has grown. The branch has grown out of the larger vine itself so that the living sap and the nutrients and the liquids flow through the vascular system of the huge plant that carries and goes on for hundreds of feet so that sweet grapes will grow. Well, we know that our bonds to Jesus as Lord are indispensable, and that's what this passage states in large principle. But maybe we don't know how extensive that is. We don't know that all that we are in this world or all that we would ever accomplish, at least that which would ever remain behind us when we leave this world, 
depends on Jesus living out his life in us and through us. There are many things we can do, as I said a few minutes ago, that would go on our resume. You can be the president of a company. You can give away millions of dollars. You can have buildings named for you. You can live in a saintly and kind way that many, many remember you with great fondness. But if those things are not of Christ, they're not eternal things. And here Jesus is saying we belong to the Son of God in a union of salvation by God's grace working in us through faith so that his indestructible eternal life flows in us. And not only saves and transforms us individually, but those we touch, those we have some part or relationship to in the world. In the preceding chapter, John 14, 19, Jesus had said just a bit before this, because I live, you also shall live. Remember, this is on the night when they were thinking about death. They were thinking about Jesus saying he was going to die. And he's saying, because I live, you will live. He was going against everything that their minds were dwelling on in in this particular time. He was calling them to a lively relationship with himself by the Holy Spirit active in him. Well, it's really possible to become confused with this passage, and many have in the past. If you stop and think what's going on here, John 15, 4 has Jesus saying, abide in me and I will abide in you. And people think to themselves, okay, that must mean my salvation. So it's up to me to be sure I'm abiding, whatever that is, or remaining or holding on tight, and thereby Jesus will save me. But wait a minute. Isn't it true that a lot of scripture says, and I could give you a long list, that my salvation once granted by the grace of God, received through faith, is something that cannot be taken away, cannot be broken off. John 10, for example, verse 29, one of many, many passages we could cite where Jesus said, no one can snatch God's sheep out of his hand, either from the Father's hand or my hand. Jesus said, no one can take you from me. I'm the good shepherd. Once you're mine, you're mine. And that's true in many other Bible passages. And yet here's this word. Seven times I count in the first eight verses that I read. Seven times it says you must abide. You must cling. You must hold on. You must press towards the Lord. Why, if I can't be cut off, if I can't lose my salvation, what am I being asked to do here? That question comes from people. Well, see if this illustration helps you any. Let's imagine a mother and her six-year-old daughter going on a visit to New York City, a shopping trip. Now, this mother and daughter are particularly a notable mother and daughter because the mother has very notable red hair, red curly hair. And so does her daughter. Red hair, curly, you can picture her. Picture Annie from the musical, freckles on her nose. She looks like her mom. When they walk together, you go, oh, that's certainly a mother and daughter. No question about it. They share a biological bond. She's not an adopted daughter. She's a natural daughter. Their DNA is the same. 
Now, I'm just to make the example more obvious, I threw in the red hair, but here you can't change that, in other words. Here's a bond between mother and daughter that would be equivalent, we would say, if we're using this as a parable of salvation, to salvation. But what is possible to happen as mother and daughter go to New York City together on a crowded day, let's say a Saturday, and they're going to ride the subway and move about the crowded streets? You know that with a six-year-old daughter, mother's going to say now, Honey, hold on to me. Hold my hand. Don't let go of me, and I will not let go of you. Remain close to me, because the worst thing would be in this big city that we could get separated. You see, that's what this passage is talking about. Our organic relationship to Christ and to God the Father, the image of the vine, is something that cannot be taken away once it exists. It's not as though you're in any imminent danger, if you're a believer in Christ, of being broken off from the vine. So in that sense, here's something permanent, something you don't have to work at. In fact, you can't work at it. You can't influence it. It's a work of the grace of God. But just as with that little girl, let mom and daughter be shoved by the crowds. Mom lets go or is distracted. Little girl goes over and investigates something. And suddenly, where is she? Where's mom? Where are you? And they're positionally separated. That's what this parable is talking about that can happen to Christians. We can be in Christ and yet not be clinging to Christ, not seeking from Christ his daily gifts and graces, the supply of his wisdom, of his forgiveness, of his peace, of resting in him, and we can move off and positionally be far from him, even though he still is the vine and we still are the branch. Now I want to look in three cases here, what this passage tells us are results of our abiding close to him. And each of these could really be a message in itself, but we'll put them together in brief form on this communion day. What has Jesus told us will happen when we abide close to him? Well, first of all, what is abiding? It means daily decisions to act upon the relationship that we have. We are the subjects of the Lord and King of the universe. Will we act like that? Will we call him to mind? Will we pray to him? Will we make his word our study in a regular and continual and avid way? A lot of people aren't readers, I know that, but if you are a reader, I I know many readers, and you know that I'm one, of course, big problem what to do with all the books when we move soon. But uh, you know that you love a book. You get a good book, a good novel, a good biography, and and you just can hardly put it down. You you don't even want to go to dinner on time because you're so absorbed in this book. Well, is the Word of God like that to you? Is the Word of God that which draws you to it so that you're at least a chapter, a couple chapters a day, In the little time it takes, much less time than you spend on a a newspaper or a news broadcast or catching up with your friends on Facebook, that you are drawn to the news of the Word of God the way a 14-year-old is drawn to that electronic advice and, and what Susie has to say from yesterday. 
Are we cultivating the word of God and listening to it, pondering it, turning it over in our minds, asking questions of it? Are we praying when we interact with that word of God? Is there a place in our daily lives where we pray? Now, I'm not, you know, people think right away everybody turns guilty because you think, oh, the pastor's asking me to have a half an hour that I do nothing but pray. Well, I don't expect that probably happens for most of you. It would be great if it did. But where are you inserting prayer in your day where it will fit actually much more easily than you think? Many of you know I've told you over the years that I have a prayer closet, a prayer closet. It's portable. It's on wheels. It has an engine. I sit in it for significant periods of every day. And while I often have on, it drives my wife crazy because she either wants to listen to something all out or, or don't have it on. And I'll have, you know, a news broadcast on softly on the radio. But I'm not really paying too much attention to it because quite often, at least when I'm alone in my car, I'm praying. Eyes open, by the way. Good, good policy to follow. The car is a great place to pray. What else are you doing there that's important? You can watch traffic, you can be a safe driver, and still pray. You can lift up friends of yours that have needs, bring them before the Lord. You can give thanks for blessings of the day. You can say, Lord, I'm facing a problem here. I'm on my way to a situation on this job of mine. I don't know what's going to happen with this difficult person I have to deal with. Help me to have the right words and the right attitude. There are so many ways you can pray just in those kind of in-between moments of the day, if you just get in the habit of it. Make yourself a little, a little note card and write P-R-A-Y on it and tape it to your dashboard. That'll remind you. You'll have to look at that and say, oh, this would be a time I could pray. Maybe I will. Pastor told me it's a good time. You can abide in Christ while driving. You really can. Well, what's the consequence of abiding? What comes about? This passage says our lives become fruitful. No branch can bear fruit in itself. It has to remain or abide in the vine. So if you do that, you will bear much fruit. What fruit is he talking about? Is that just an empty image? Fill it in any way you want to? Well, the the New Testament certainly spells out in very specific terms what certain kinds of fruit are in the life of a Christian. Galatians 5.22 calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And some of you could, from Sunday school memorization, rattle off what the fruit of the Spirit are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, every single one of those things are things I don't have by nature of birth. They're actually just about the opposite of the way I am. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Whoops, I fail in all categories. So if I'm going to have these things as fruit, they're going to come from God. They're going to be categories of Christ-like character being incrementally, degree by degree, developed in me as I ponder the word of God, as I pray, as I seek to act in my imperfect, sinful ways, on what I read in Scripture and what God shows me. And I will change incrementally. That means very gradually. 
degree by degree. I don't see from one day to the next or even one month to the next that I have changed a great deal in the patience department or the gentleness department or the self-control department. But incrementally means the change is turning like the hands of a clock turn. You don't see them turn very fast unless you're really studying, but they're turning without you noticing it. But look back after a little while, and they've changed a lot, haven't they? Jesus is saying, united to me and obedient to me, you will begin to resemble me. The fruit of my character will be imprinted on you and will gradually change you, changing your homely image, no special insult intended because I'm the homeliest of all, into his beautiful image. And this goes on throughout a lifetime as we're in the word of God and in prayer in our lives. What do we say about someone in whom no such fruit is ever seen at all? Well, I would think the only thing we could say is that that person is no believer at all. And it is possible, perhaps, to simply pose as a believer, act like a believer, but not be born again, so that you never were really attached to Christ the vine, and therefore you become that dead branch that has to be thrown away. But anyone who is truly born again by faith in Jesus Christ is attached to the vine. It's a question of are you positionally seeking, clinging to, adhering to the things that are given you to grow in Christ-likeness. Our text speaks of another consequence besides bearing fruit, and that is the pruning that God does to make way for more growth. Every branch that bears fruit, the Father prunes to be more fruitful. I can remember many times driving up and down the New York Thruway from along the Lake Erie shore in particular, and there's an area you come to where I was told years ago when I was a boy that land that was owned, either owned by or, I don't know, leased to or something, the Welch's Company, and all you see over rolling hills are, are grapevines going along for miles. They're still there today. And I remember seeing those in the winter, and what a stark scene they were. As somebody had trimmed them back, there was no green growth at all, no clusters of grapes, of course, just stumps almost that had been severely cut back. By the way, the New Testament word for pruning here is the word catharizo that we get the idea of catharsis, a cleansing, a purging or a cleansing of, of the growing vine to make room for new growth. And Jesus says, your father's going to catharizo you. He's going to prune you, trim you. Now, God does that a lot of ways. If we had time, we could explore some of those. But he does it through suffering. He does it through denying us things. He does it through giving us disappointments sometimes. He pulls things out of our lives that we think we need. And we say, oh, Lord, your knife is very sharp on me today. Don't do that to me. Don't cut that away. But then we find out down the road that somehow that was good for us. David found that out. He said once in the Psalms, it was good for me to be afflicted, Lord, so I might learn your decrees. The master vine dresser knows what he's doing with his knife, with his pruning hook. It will hurt. 
it will cut. But he knows his craft. And he can be trusted that he's doing a positive thing, not negative. Then there's this third thing that I'll mention today. And I'm being quick with things that could be developed much more. But abiding in Christ in verse 7 of chapter 15 here has a promise in it about answered prayer that seems almost incredible. Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Really? Whatever I wish? You know, we're inclined to say of this, no, you're kidding me, Jesus. That's not true. Well, the problem is we don't understand the core of whatever you wish. Christ is saying, as you dwell in me, the living vine, and I have the life of the Father in me and give that life to you and give you that wisdom, that grace, that participation in my own life, you're being saturated more and more in conformity to my mind, my divine life, And more and more, the way you think and the way you approach things and what you would have and ask for is what I would ask for and what I would be doing and thinking in your place. He's picturing the growing disciple whose life and mindset is growing to be like his own, who is more and more pleading for the very mind of the Lord, not our selfish, unwise totally pitiful desires of what we want. When you want what God wants, you see a power in prayer that is not available any other way. And that's a subject to be taken up more at another time. Well, in just a few minutes before we come to the communion table, we're going to sing a familiar hymn that has this line in it, very familiar line. I take, O cross, thy shadow... For my abiding place. The place where I will cling, where I will remain, where God will know where to find me is going to be at the foot of the cross. Now the cross is a place where death happens. And that means I come and know that things have to be put to death in my life. I have to be transparent with God about my sins, about my unworthiness about my foolish whims that I'm praying about that need to be changed as he transforms my thinking. I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place. I want to live at the foot of the cross that I may experience the benefits of the cross. You better be careful. Be careful what you sing. God might just think you mean it. He might just think you mean it, that you're going to really... Abide at the foot of the cross. I'm assuming today, and I know I can't assume in every single case, but I'm assuming I'm speaking primarily to people who are in an organic union to Jesus Christ already. You are like that little red-haired girl, obviously belonging to her mother, obviously born of that mother in a biological relationship that cannot be broken. But, This passage is asking you about your positional relationship. Are you walking with Christ a hundred yards behind him, barely trying to keep him in sight, running to catch up because you've neglected him for a long time? 
Or are you ready to say, I want to dwell at the foot of his cross, where I can receive his benefits, where I can learn of his wonderful mind and words, where his Holy Spirit can be my very life, changing me, incrementally moving me degree by degree in a work that will be in progress all my life, transforming me into the image of himself. Will you search the scriptures on a regular basis? Will you make prayer part of the warp and woof of your life? He said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That means all that you are, all that you will accomplish that will remain behind after you are gone from this life, depends on him living his extraordinary life, his Holy Spirit life, in you. Seek him. Abide in him. Cling to him. Let him be your life. Our Father, as we come to this table, we come unworthily. We don't come with our resumes in hand, ready to slap them down on the communion table and say, Here, God, I know you're impressed that I'm here. Here's all my credentials. Help us to come just the opposite. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Lord, draw us to yourself. There may we find our true delight and the walk of salvation that you give us in the name of Jesus may be ours. Amen.